Kids, you can line up at the door and we'll pray for you and for us as we prepare to hear God's word this morning. Let's pray. God, we um, pray that that would be true for us, that you would truly be our treasure, that when we consider life and all the good things that there are in this life, that um, what would be most true of us and of these little ones is that we would know you as our portion, as enough, as the thing that we desire, as our treasure. And so I pray for that, God. Um, Help us to understand uh, this morning what a treasure you are, the joy that is to be found uh, in knowing you, in loving you, in being loved by you. So uh, help all of us uh, this morning with that, we pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have a good time, kids. Uh, Our text will be on the screen. Hear God's word this morning from uh, the book of Matthew. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. I want to start uh, this morning with this question. What, what, what is it that brings you joy? Now, you, there, there might be some things to unpack there before you can get there, but as you sit here in this moment with your current understanding of joy, What is on your list? It can be difficult. The idea of joy is elusive. Like, what is joy? If I were to ask you what makes you happy as you sit right now, maybe that gets a little bit easier. Maybe not. Maybe not because it even that seems elusive to you because where you sit right now, there isn't a lot of things that you can find on that list. I still want to press the question. What brings you joy? Now with that, let me ask the second. What would you give up in order to have or keep this joy? If you have something on your list or many things on your list that bring you joy, what then would you willingly, gladly give up, sacrifice in order to have that joy? Because in truth, joy does is elusive. doesn't just seem elusive. I want to tell you a story about, uh, uh, some of you already heard this because I can't stop talking about it, but I want to tell you a story about a meal that I had. So I uh, recently had this incredible meal. Um, it was nine courses. Um, they were small, so that seems like a lot because you're like, man, all right, let's go. Um, but they were small courses, and yet, like, they also came with a pairing of wine and tequila, mezcal. So it was, it was a good meal, right? Um, what made this meal special was several things. First, the, the whole uh, experience of the restaurant itself made it a special meal, right? Like, there was, uh, like, there was choreography, in fact, with the waiters of our table, like, they gave the dishes and took the dishes away in unison. Um, that might not be a big deal to you, but I, I thought, and Danette thought it was quite cool. Um, 
And then there was like this culture of like, like expectation, right? Like the people who were serving the food, the chef who walked around the restaurant, the, the maitre d' sommelier, like they all had this expectation that you were going to experience something around this table. And so much so that they like kind of lingered, they like stood tiptoe, they had their ears to the table, they were watching, listening, waiting to see what we would experience around this table. Now that made it somewhat special. It was, it was also mysterious, like I, I had never heard of this restaurant, I'd never been to the restaurant, I didn't know what to expect. Um, Richard tried to tell us what we might expect on this, uh, at this meal, but I had no idea. And so as they brought the dishes out, the first dish they brought out was this like thing to cleanse our palate. And we were all, it was like a avocado ice cream. You might be going sick or like both in positive or negative ways. Um, <clears throat> it was infused with like chocolate and pinon and jalapeno. And they wanted us all to take the bite at the same time. So we could all then experience the same thing at the same time and then talk about it. And then we were kind of guided through the process of talking about it by uh, our waiter and then later uh, the chef. How did it go? How did, how did you experience the flavors and the layer of flavors on your tongue? It was delightful. It was something I would never experienced before, in fact. Just that first bite. And I still had eight more bites plus a lot of alcohol to go. And it was all amazing. It really was. Like, uh, it wasn't just amazing because of the food and the waiter. It was amazing because this chef, like, I want to read you his prayer that he shared with us, that he prays with his staff before every serving of every meal. Dear God, I humbly request... Help me, uh, help me feel the importance of what I do. Bless me as I prepare this meal. Bless the ingredients I use. May this meal be a reflection and embodiment of your love. May its flavors delight and its textures please. May it nourish and comfort. And may it bless the body, mind, and spirit of all who partake of it. Now, a chef with such a vision, you can imagine how important each serving of such meal would be. And so he was there, like, talking us through, telling us stories. He's from Mexico. He's probably in his late 60s, early 70s. He was trying to give us a history of uh, the culinary arts that have come out of Mexico in the act of giving us this, this meal. The last thing that made it special was just the, the company. It happened to be Rebecca's 50th birthday, um, and it was just a delight. I walked away from that going, as many, I think maybe all of us, that might have been the best experience, the best meal I've ever had. I was delighted. And so, as a matter of delight, as I talk about around here all the time, I couldn't wait to share this delight with as many people as I knew that cared about food that were foodies, that even if you didn't care about food, I was going to tell you about how much I delighted in it, and I was going to complete my delight in it by sharing it with you. And there's something about that that gets at joy. Like the deep, 
joy of food and drink and the surprises of food and drink and the deeper joy of sharing a meal, of celebration, of friendship. Now, our parable this morning, our parables, there are two, are about two treasures and the joy that those treasures produce. I want you to think about this because I think that the joy of a meal or the joy of company and friendship that some of us have had the gift of experiencing is a guide for us. Josh talked about the mundane, uh, the mundane things of life. I think that there are so many beautiful and wonderful things about life that are meant to help us understand what it's like to delight in Jesus and the gospel. And a good meal is meant to do that. And so I want it to kind of be a guide for us, some bumper rails as you think about what brings you joy and what you would give up. Because I'll tell you this, after experiencing such a meal, I am way more willing to give up a lot more to experience it again. Because it was so delightful. Now, we do have an outline this morning, which might be surprising to you. One, and maybe delightful as well. One, the people of the kingdom. Two, the treasure of the kingdom. And three, the joy of the kingdom. First, the people of the kingdom. Who are the people in these parables who find treasure and thus the joy of the kingdom? A parable about a treasure in the field. This first parable, a man stumbles upon it without even seeking it. And then the second is about a buyer, a treasure seeker, who is searching out a particular type of gemstone By the way, a pearl would have been like diamonds are to us today in Jesus' time. A stumbler and a seeker who find something of great value and then respond with joy that changes the rest of their life. Now, let's hit the contrast. The first man is not looking for the treasure that he finds. He's, He's simply walking, visiting, resting, playing in a field, a field that isn't his, by the way. We aren't told much more, like whose field is it, but is it public land? Is it the king's land? Does the treasure finder seek out the owner in finding the treasure? But as he comes upon it, he isn't looking for it. If you've ever watched Survivor, there are these things that entered the game about seasons three or four. They're called immunity idols. And there are times when one of the cast happens to just stumble upon immunity idol. They aren't even looking for it. And they find it. Now, of course, there's other times where the cast is urgently, desperately searching for it, intent to find it. This is one of those, oh, what's this? And then it's dug up, opened up, unpacked. He, he stubs his toe, looks down, what's that? He, he brushes back the dirt, pulls the box from the earth, opens it up and sees something. What is it? Is this what we think it is? Is this what I think it is? There's, there's shock, there's surprise. There's probably then also maybe a little fear and paranoia, right? Now, the other man is a pearl merchant. He is a professional seeker. He knows gems, particularly pearls. He's, he spent his life looking for them, and he finds what he's looking for, a pearl of great price. Here, Jesus shows us two ways of getting into the kingdom. The first man isn't Nick Cage. He isn't Indiana Jones. Maybe he's more like the kids in the Goonies, like the Goonies kids stumble upon a map in the home, in the attic of the home, 
And then he seeks, then they seek the treasure. This is even more sure. The, they, they happen, he happens upon the treasure. This man is going about his day, his work, his rest, his play, wandering in the mundane moments of life, and he finds the gospel. He's never heard of it, wasn't seeking it, and yet there it was. And his life was immediately changed. Everything that is now not, everything that wasn't is, suddenly is, completely is. Maybe this is you, your story. You weren't searching for Jesus, and yet Jesus found you. He found you, he found you in a sense, unexpectedly. He surprised you. You met someone. You went somewhere. You showed up at church, a campus ministry, a youth retreat, and it was here, through this person, through this event, that you heard the news about Jesus and his son, the son of God, and your sin, your need. And you trusted in Jesus right there. Your life was changed. Isaiah 65, 1, I, God says, revealed myself to those who did not ask me. I was found by those who did not seek me. Maybe this is you. Maybe this is you even as you sit here this morning. You, you haven't been seeking. But now as you sit and hear this, God is seeking you. And Jesus is here. And he's drawing you. The second man is a seeker. He is searching for truth, beauty, goodness. He, he's wanting to find something that will consequently in its finding reorient, recenter his life. He, his searching has had him examining all sorts of philosophies and truths and goods and faiths. There have been a lot of counterfeits that he's come across. Less than satisfying experiences. I think of, of Tom Brady after, I think he won his second or his third Super Bowl and honestly saying, is this all there is? There has to be more of this, more than this. And of course, that didn't stop Tom from pursuing the next treasure of the next Super Bowl and the next season. When this man discovers the pearl, he goes to every length to have the treasure. This is it. Jesus says earlier in Matthew, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Maybe this is you. You have been open to God, to spiritual things. You, you sought truth. You've, you've searched for beauty. You've met with people. You've read books. You've found gurus. And then you started reading the Bible. And you came to know Jesus. Jesus says he is the gate, the door, the way, the truth, the life. We sing a song, venture on him, venture holy. This is what we see in both of these men, which reflects the great value of the treasure they found. They both sell all that they have so they can have the treasure. And that leads to point two, the treasure of the kingdom. Both men see what? They see the value of the treasure. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is a treasure. Maybe we stop there and go, is it? Do you think that? I mean, I know for most of my life, I was like Bono singing the song, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Is that you? Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is a treasure. And this treasure is so amazing, so fulfilling, so consuming, that in having it, you have it. Like, like everything that I need, everything that I want, everything. So they both sell all they have 
so they can have this treasure. The man buys the field, which is not his, so he can have the treasure inside of it. The other man sells all that he has so he can acquire the pearl. Jesus is not only saying that the the kingdom of God is a treasure, but he's saying it is this kind of treasure. Now let's go back to the original questions. What gives you joy? And what would you give up to have it? Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is this valuable. Why? Well, first, being in the kingdom of God gives you access to the king. Not just access, by the way, but the king himself. John Piper has a little book called God is the Gospel. Piper says there is a joy that comes when you get God. The kingdom of God gives you access to the king, and not just access, but the king. You you could say that Jesus is the true treasure of the kingdom. Like, relationship with this king, well, what, what does that mean? Well, it means we get things because of the king. Now, we get the king, but because of the king, you get the things that are associated with this king, right? You get relationship with this king, but you also get forgiveness. He is a treasure because he lived a life of love towards God his Father. He did what you and I could not do, namely loving God and others sinlessly. He lived a life of quality and beauty and goodness. His his life was centered on God, his Father, his word. He, He then loved out of that his family, his friends, his neighbors. We all long for such a life, right? We, we long for life where we're loved and we love. We're all ashamed of the ways we haven't loved well. We regret them. Like at the end of our life, that's the things we go back to where we regret that we didn't love well enough. We have shame that we weren't loved well. We long for forgiveness and, and we, we, we are stuck in these places in the ways we failed to love well. We long for a holiness, a purity. We search for it. In Jesus, we receive it. He takes on the curse. He he bears our shame, our guilt on the cross. He atones for all those sins, all those regrets. He covers them. He forgives them. He removes them, we're told, as far as the east is from the west. And then... He gives resurrection. He provides our healing and renewal. Like in resurrection, humanity, our humanity, gets reconstituted. Our chief problem, death, is overcome and defeated. We all die, but we will all be raised, the Bible tells us. And that eternal life, we're told, comes to us even now. In Jesus, we're united to him by, when we're united to him by, by faith, we receive this life. This life means that we can experience like change. Wholeness, renewal. We all long for this. Don't we, beloved? Like, we long to experience change and renewal and joy. I mean, think about your week. What are the things and the ways you've hoped for your life to look different, feel different? Have you ever hoped for your life to be caught up, like caught up into something Like, I remember when I was young, like this desire to be a part of something, something larger than myself, 
something beautiful, something good, something true. This is the offer of the treasure, that your life can have meaning and purpose against a backdrop of a world and a culture which says you, bravery is looking out into the abyss and going on anyway. Like there's nothing out there, y'all. True bravery is facing that. That's what our culture says. What a treasure it would be if you knew your life mattered because something external told you that it did and then gave you, animated you to live it. And you can have rest. Because all of this has been given as a gift, because he has won for you, then you can have rest. Now, uh, Josh talked about this quote that I read at Charlie's ordination, and I want to read it again here. So if you've heard it the last time, you get to hear it again. I think it captures something of what the treasure that being in relationship with this king gives you. The idea that there is unconditional love. Now think about that. Because most of the loves that you experience, even oftentimes, as you get older, you deduce this, your love sometimes from your parents even, is conditional, or it seems conditional. The idea that there is an unconditional love that relieves the pressure, forgives our failures, replaces our fears with faith, seems too good to be true. Longing for a word of hope in a world of hype, the gospel, the treasure of the kingdom of Jesus is the news we've been waiting for all our lives. God loves real people like you and me, which he demonstrated by sending his son to set you free. Jesus came to free us, to liberate us from the weight of having to make it on our own, from the demand to measure up. He came to emancipate us from the burden to get it all right. Think about this week and the ways you tried to get it all right. The obligation to fix yourself. Like how many of you have thought about and weighed your week and the joy of this week by your obligations to fix yourself? Jesus came to release us from the slavish need to be right, rewarded, regarded, and respected. Because Jesus came to set the captives free, life does not have to be a tireless effort to establish yourself, justify yourself, validate yourself. Go back to your work week. How much spinning have you done to validate yourself? Look at your children. How much have you tried to validate yourself by what they do? By who they are? One way to summarize God's, uh, wait, sorry, the gospel of Jesus announces, the, the, the good news of the kingdom, the treasure, announces that because Jesus was strong for you, you're free to be weak. Because Jesus is one for you, you're free to lose. Because Jesus was someone, you're free to be no one. Because Jesus was extraordinary, you're free to be ordinary. Because Jesus succeeded for you, you're free to fail. 
Once this good news grips your heart, it changes everything. It frees you from having to be perfect. It frees you from having to hold it together. In the place of exhaustion, you find rest. And entry into this kingdom is free. The treasure, whether sought for or stumbled upon, is free. Now, don't mistake this. You can't earn this treasure. You can't earn it. It's free. The the stumbler and the seeker stumble upon free grace. And what do they do and respond to this free treasure? Well, that leads to the last point, the joy of the kingdom. What should you do in response to the treasure, the king, and all the benefits that you get from being in relationship and union with the king? Well, one man sells all that he has and buys the field. The other man sells all that he has and buys the pearl. You might try to moralize this part of the parable, like it's been moralized. Sacrifice everything. You should, in fact. You must, in fact, sacrifice everything for Jesus. You should serve Jesus with this sort of dedication. This is not what these men do. No one asks them to do anything. They sell all that they have, we're told, in joy he goes and sells all he has and buys the field. Joy is the engine. And this is why the question of our joy matters. Neither the stumbler or the seeker think they are making a sacrifice at all. They actually think the treasure is so great so beautiful, so good, so authentic, so true, that they're coming out ahead, way ahead. They aren't losing anything. They are gaining everything. And this is the promise of the kingdom, that the joy is so great that it makes everything that is lost seem as if it was not much to be lost at all in comparison. And this is hard for us. Because we have everything. We have meals. We have money. We have all sorts of treasures. And that's why the question of what brings you joy matters. Don't miss the shocking reality of the kingdom. This is why Jesus calls the disciples, leave brother, father, sister, mother, hometown, friends, Because he's offering something that is no comparison. What motivates you? What do you want or need to be happy? Now, this is a Christian desire, by the way, because God is a joyful God. He wants you and I to share his joy. In fact, this is the deep reality of life with God. Jesus knows that what what will give us the most Joy, the most happiness, is what? Himself. Every gift that falls down from above, we're told, comes from the Father of lights. Why? So you and I will look past the little glint of light that comes in the gift to the sun that resides behind that little glint of light. That's what he wants for you and I. He is the treasure. 
He is the pearl of great price. Moved by joy, both men sell absolutely everything so they could have fully this more new, precious, delightful thing. Joy is the engine of change. It's the engine of sacrifice. This is good business for both of these men. Both the the stumbler and the seeker make huge gains. But it's not more stuff. It's more Jesus. Because he's the treasure. If you examine this story of the worldwide Christian movement, it will show you and I, if we just study the history, if you take, we're going to have a perspectives class that's being offered here. It's called Perspectives of the World Christian Movement. If you were to study the movement of how the people who don't know or never heard about Jesus hear about Jesus and what happens and why people go to Muslim countries, to war-torn regions, to impoverished places, why Stephen Watley and Lori Watley went out to to Guam and all these other islands that I don't even know the name of, Why? What's the motivator? Joy. The going is because in the going, they get God. And giving up everything to leave this, to go for that, is so much more delightful. When we think about overcoming addictions or sin, joy is the something greater, the the something more full. I don't know if you... You know who Maria Kondo is, Marie Kondo is, but she, she has this whole thing, right, about clutter-free life. And what does she say? Find the spark of joy. Go through your house, go through all your things, all your belongings, and whatever gives you a spark of joy, you keep. Whatever doesn't, you get rid of. Now, what's fascinating about this, that this is her life. She's built her whole life, her empire, on this idea. And then she had kids. She said when she uh, had her second child, just after my older daughter was born, I felt unable to forgive myself for not being able to manage my life as I had before. But with time, I eased up on myself. Then after I gave birth to my second daughter, I let go of my need for perfection altogether. Just like that? Yeah, just like that. For Kondo, this change didn't occur out of necessity. It came with a heart check. She saw her kids as a new spark of joy. More than that, an enduring flame, even though it made staying ahead of cleaning more difficult. Relationship broke the back of the rules. Love overcame her need for perfection. You see, a greater love, that is what's required for an addict, a sinner, a perfectionist. That's what makes the treasure so joyous. And this is what God wants for you today, to have an overwhelming experience of the splendor of discovering the value of the kingdom, the treasure of the kingdom that tells us, tells us everything. It is so great. It's what carries us away with joy to, to do, to sell, to give, to love, to obey. If you don't have the treasure and the joy of possessing the treasure, then all the doing and selling and giving and loving and obeying will feel like a taskmaster. It will feel like a burden. It will feel like a have to. 
it will feel like the law. But Jesus came to free you from the law and give you a greater joy. Now, I want to close by applying this a little bit wider for a second. I mean, I want you this morning, as application, pursue the greater joy. Pursue the greater joy. Pursue the treasure that is Jesus. Let joy be the motivator for whatever you do as a Christian. And I want you to think about it this way. The pearl is of great value to the merchant just as the treasure in the field was to the man who found it hidden. Both spent whatever they needed to make their purchases. They both pursued the greater joy. But I think the parable gets at something for us. How you and I should share our joy. How we should share about the treasure to other stumblers and seekers, which is important for you and I as we live our life together as the church in the world. Now, I want to lean on Robert Capon here a lot. All the children of Adam, he says, all human beings at all times and in all places are in the kingdom business. They are shopping, he says, day and night for the mystery of the city of God. True enough, like any random group of shoppers, they have their share of gullibilities, questionable taste, and and proneness to buy what's in the store rather than wait for what they're really looking for. Now this is you and I, and it's the world that we live in. They are shopping. And they are, as often not, quite willing to put their money where their heart's desire is. They're not simply a bunch of cheapskates. Now think about this when you think about the world and our culture. They're not just a bunch of cheapskates, and they don't give in half a chance to see some first-rate goods simply fob off the storekeeper with, oh, oh, we're just looking. Hear this. When you want to take jabs at our culture and world and think that the way to combat it is some sort of war. In fact, I would say that culture warring, our way of sharing the treasure, is in fact casting pearls before swine where actually we're the swine rooting about in the mud with the treasure. Now, Capon goes on. The call of the church then is to show them one pearl of great price that they might recognize it as the thing they've been hunting for. The church, according to Capon, should enter into our missionary calling with full confidence that the world actually wants what we have to sell. And not only should we put the news of its high price as winningly and as clearly as possible, we should also not be too quick to insult their taste in pearls before they get to our shop. And we should be equally slow to scare them out of the store with lots of negative talk, either about high prices or about the awesome, burdensome responsibilities incurred by those who acquire a top-of-the-line merchandise. Of course, there are responsibilities, Capon says. Buying the world's finest pearl means guarding it, worrying about it, paying monstrous insurance premiums on it. But first and above all, it actually means owning the world's finest pearl. Pearl, which you even have a smitch of a taste for pearls, 
has got to be a real up. And this is the tension point for us. Is our great joy in the treasure? Do you actually think and know you own it? Have you experienced it? That hits us, right? How sad it is then to reflect on what the world actually hears from the church in so many instances. We offer to sell them the mystery of the love of God and Jesus, but the way we talk about God and Jesus only makes it sound as if we're trying to peddle a live rattlesnake. People converted by fear-mongering are people converted from evil, not to truth and beauty. And if they ever work up the nerve to make friends with the evil, woe to the missionary enterprise. The truth will be as if they never bought it. If the merchant had bought the pearl only because he was afraid his friends would despise him if he hadn't, then the minute he got strong enough to tell his friends to fly a kite, he would have sold the pearl and bought something else. All of which, I suppose, makes the pearl a parable about a a lot of conversations in the history of the church. This mystery has been sold at spear point, at gunpoint, At economic pressure point, oh, this is our time, friends. If you listen to the way the church wants to talk about Jesus in this moment, so much of it sounds like that. It's why such hard sells have even been justified on the basis, if it's good for everybody in the world, who cares how we get them to buy it? But the mystery is a mystery of love and wants nothing less than a free offering of complete simplicity. It waited for eons even to show its face. It can certainly wait a few more days, months, or years for people to decide they actually like its name. The stumbler and the seeker purchase gladly at whatever cost. It is in their ecstatic enjoyment of this utterly precious treasure that would have been cheap at twice the price. Now let me end with this. The woman who walks out of Bindles, which is an old baller department store, with a $15,000 mink, which may be offensive to you, and the man who pulls into the driveway with a brand new cream and gold Rolls Royce are not in that moment at least gloomy characters. And to bring the parable full circle, neither are the salespeople who close the deals on such fabulous purchases, There is joy in heaven over one sinner that repents. Not a lot of hand wringing or burrow furrowing, and certainly not a boring, a lot of boring watch your step now lecture from the divine counterparts of Bindle, Rolls, and Royce. Therefore, there should be at least smiles in the church over some happy turn of events. Not because we've made a buck, and not, God forbid, because we have compassion. We've passed over sea and land to make a proselyte, but only, only because we as, you might not like the sales language, but I think it's it's good, because we as customers are satisfied because they have put on the mink of righteousness, sat down in the Rolls Royce of salvation, and now are just laughing themselves silly over the incongruous wonderfulness of it all. How should you share about your treasure? Like that. Let's pray.
Help us, God. I mean, I think for me, I know that tasting and seeing that you are good is vital in my discipleship. There are so many other things that taste good. So many other things that tempt me to think there are better joys to be found out there. I think that's true for all of us. And so I pray this morning that we would once again like see the treasure, uh, the freedom, the rest that we have in union with Jesus. That we would taste today, now, and see and remember just how good you are. And that then, uh, that joy, the joy of the, the, the tasting and the seeing and the goodness would be the motivator for us in what we, how we live. That our, our, our taste buds would be trained to taste all the delicacies of the gospel, like that avocado ice cream, all the ways it hits us, and that out of the joy and delight of that, we would share it as something joyful and, delight and full of delight. Resting completely in Jesus, the one who wins people into the kingdom by his life, death, resurrection, by his beauty, his goodness, and his truth. So help us, God, to believe that today as we come to the table and taste your grace. Help us to believe that it's true. Help us to experience that it's true. And help us to then be made into people who share the delights of a life with you. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.